The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. For some of us, at least some of the time, this obsession, tendency of our mind to notice what's off in the mind. So one thing to take away from this eight-week class is a real commitment, a real training in recognizing what's beautiful and learning to be appreciative about the potential beauty and stability and power of a mind that has activated, brought into balance these seven factors. In a way, I think it's useful to say this, there's nothing more powerful than a mind in balance in this way. Basically, everything can be dealt with with this mind, right? It doesn't mean that that mind has the power to change reality, but it has the power to know how to show up and how to connect. That's really that's what it can do. It knows how to connect, and in being connected and, and meeting things as they are then the response will be a thing of beauty. It will be wholesome, skillful, helpful. As opposed to when our mind is out of balance and we're then operating with self-view to some degree. And then we're always, our response, our understanding and response will always be off. It will always leave a reverberation that then has to be addressed and on and on like that, because we address the reverberation again with the mind out of balance, again leaving a reverberation. And it's like the dog or the cat chasing the tail. It's a restless way of being, because we're always creating messes that we then deal with by creating another mess, which we then deal with by creating another mess, on and on. So it's another way to think about this mind in balance is it doesn't leave a trace, it doesn't create a mess. So in your small groups tonight, one of the things you might talk about, you might recall times when your mind felt in balance, really powerfully in balance, tranquil, not restless, but bright, clear, discerning, not thinking that there's nothing to wake up to, right? So both the active and the tranquil in balance. And you might remember, like in those times, how nimbly the body-mind navigated that part of life, how naturally skillful you were in those times. And in your small group, or just generally, you might bring to mind times when your mind felt out of balance. And and then to name, to notice how every time we did something, showed up, we ended up, there was always a trace. There was always a mess that then had to be dealt with. And more and more and more like that.
Another interesting thing that might be uh, something you can bring up in your small group is how you're beginning to realize or understand equanimity as the deepest kind of happiness. You know, from an ordinary mind, this kind of happiness turns out to be really uh, much more refined. The happiness of peace or the happiness of equanimity, not needing things to to be other than they are. I sent you an article by Shayla Catherine, one of the teachers in our tradition, Equanimity in Every Bite. She writes in that article, Equanimity contains the complete willingness to behold the pleasant and the painful events of life equally. It points to a deep balance in which you are not pushed and pulled between the coercive energies of desire and aversion. Equanimity has the capacity to embrace extremes without getting thrown off balance. Equanimity takes interest in whatever is occurring simply because it is occurring. Equanimity does not include the aversive states of indifference, boredom, coldness, or hesitation. It is an expression of calm, radiant balance that takes whatever comes in stride. She then gives the example of eating eggplant parmesan. (laughs) She names all the, you know, because the mind isn't confused by delighting, it's able to, precisely because it's not confused by craving, I really like the oiliness of the cheese or the, you know, tanginess of the tomato or the smoothness of the eggplant that's cooked to perfection. But because the mind isn't getting lost in the delighting of what it likes, it can actually experience a sense experience in, you know, in real, with real nuance, all the little elements. Nothing's missed because the mind isn't delighting in any one thing and therefore sort of losing touch with reality. So this is something you can share. Like, And she says this in the article. Oh, maybe I'll read this paragraph. Some of my beginning students have told me, quote, but I don't want that kind of happiness. I enjoy the gusto of delight. I relish a passionate involvement with my life. I love the excitement of experience. I understand, as a concept, equanimity may appear unappealing, But students nonetheless discover, quite to their surprise, that the exquisite peace of a balanced state, that the exquisite peace of balanced states has a taste of happiness beyond pleasure and beyond pain. She goes on, she talks about when our mind is still in the level of delighting in what's pleasant, you know. In my mind, what has been conditioned to be pleasant, when I'm delighting in it, we don't realize we set up the equal and opposite. 
that I'm afraid of what's not delightful. There's no way for our mind to be in that world of pleasant and unpleasant, identified with the world, attached to the world of pleasant and unpleasant, without being agitated. Because there's no pleasant without unpleasant. No high without low, no cold without warm, no good without bad. So it's precisely because equanimity moves the mind or opens the mind to a space beyond craving. That's literally the definition of equanimity, right? It's a mind not confused by its likes and dislikes. That's what equanimity is. So, you know, normally we first access, uh, access rather this place when we're just in a really pleasant place. It's interesting how this works. Because when our mind is in a really pleasant place, the mind that is um, obsessed with pleasant and unpleasant can get quiet because it's really pleasant. So we get a little taste of equanimity when things are really good for us. We're in a paradise of some kind, whatever that might be. Everything's just right. No one's telling us to do anything. We're in a pleasant environment on vacation. Or, of course, traditionally in the practice is a really good set where the mind has retreated, has been secluded from what's agitating. And then we really taste equanimity. Now, this equanimity is dependent on the seclusion, on the quiet. And it makes sense how it's placed in the seven factors, right? It's after concentration. So when the mind is really, right, that concentration in the mind is actually the object of awareness is the stillness, or you could say is the mind that is retreated from sense, more gross sense experience, right? So the mind, the attention in the mind isn't focused on what's being heard, what's being seen, what's being thought, what's being felt in the body. But because it's a concentrated mind, the attention is on the mind that is secluded. So it's on the mind itself, the space of the mind, the stillness of the mind, the silence of the mind. That isn't obsessively reacting to, tuning into the sense gates. So the, the energy of the mind has withdrawn from hearing the eyes, of course, ears, everything still works, but the energy of attention has withdrawn from that. Just like when you're absorbed in a novel, somebody could walk in the room, you might not notice them. It's not like you don't hear, but the energy of attention isn't with the hearing. Right? It's with the seeing and the comprehending of the novel you're reading. So concentration is a little bit like that where the mind withdraws and still. And then in that place of stillness, of samadhi, then we use that to really get a sense of what equanimity is. That impartial, like in that quiet, unafflicted space, because the mind's withdrawn, we can 
directly sense what equanimity is. Oh, this is a mind that's currently not being pushed around by likes and dislikes because it's withdrawn from the world of likes and dislikes. It's not thinking about likes and dislikes. It's paying attention to the stillness of a mind not involved with likes and dislikes. So we notice the equanimity there. We bring it into view. So there's stillness, but we're not looking at the stillness now. Now we're looking at a mind that's not being pushed around by likes and dislikes. It feels it's kind of a power or, or an immunity to being pushed and pulled by what's agreeable and what's disagreeable. And so then the interesting thing is that understanding, that recognition of equanimity, even though initially it might be dependent on a mind that's really retreated, secluded, then it's just interesting to the mind to see if that equanimity can continue as it moves into life, to what, you know, to sights and sounds and touches and thoughts and sensations. So then we can really explore, and this is something you can bring up in your small groups too. Places where you seem to have more space, more equanimity, where the different feelings that you have pleasant and unpleasant feelings that you have doesn't seem to rock your world. And there's some places where we seem to be more vulnerable, the mind seems to be more dependent on pleasant and unpleasant. But it's true, there's other places where we have a lot of equanimity, a lot more space, a lot more tolerance for things being the way that they are. Think about camping, backpacking, you know, where, or some of you are travelers. And it's interesting, you know, things, if we are here in the city doing our normal life, living our normal life with our jobs and family or whatever, we could be quite irritated by traffic or by this, the bad weather, whatever. But when we're traveling, it's kind of an adventure. Oh, this will be interesting. So that's just that sense of like how the mind is framing agreeable and disagreeable experiences. Is it framing it as an adventure? Or is it framing it as a personal insult? Getting a cold is a really good example of like how we hold it, like not that it's one or the other, but through the course of the days of having this, you know, sometimes having a lot of equanimity, a lot of patience, a lot of understanding, and other times feeling really identified with the thought of feeling really put upon, like, well, this isn't fair. This is not my fault. I know who to blame. I was joking with Megan earlier because Megan was on the Holy Spirit retreat and there were 
I don't know how many, but six, seven or so people who seemed pretty sick on this residential retreat last weekend, over the long weekend. So we were a bit of an incubator there. You know, and who am I putting at risk right now? (laughs) (coughs) Pierre, you want to move back a little bit? Once we get a taste, it's like a, you know, one of these intoxicating drugs. You get a taste of it, can't get it out of your mind. There's been a lot in the news about opioids and addiction lately. And uh, I forget where I heard this or read this, but there was a young boy who had his wisdom, a young man maybe, he was a high schooler I think, had his wisdom teeth out and the doc, dentist I guess, prescribed the opioids, whatever they were for the painkiller. And uh, <laughs> so he's home now. He took some, and his mom's there. And uh, the mom sees how much he's really enjoying the painkiller. And so the mother takes him and says, you can't have these. And, uh, you know, gives him Tylenol or whatever instead. <clears throat> but anyway, he finds them hidden wherever she hid them. And that was the beginning. And then he, you know, the, how the story goes. He got addicted eventually. It's an economic decision, I guess. You go to heroin because it's a lot cheaper than buying the, you know, prescription painkillers on the black market. And, uh, and then before very long, you're addicted but in a good sense, in a, but in a similar sense, when we taste this energy of impartiality, the, the real happiness of a mind that's actually not bothered by sense experience. Like there's a taste there that... And so what we need to do is investigate. I mean, remember, investigation with the continuity of mindfulness... Investigation is empowered by this recognition that it matters, that there are some things that we can figure out that will really make a difference. So, for example, in terms of equanimity, it's like what supports... I mean, because don't we realize, certainly every day, every few days at least, we get burnt by the lack of equanimity. You know, we're reactive in some way, and our reactivity is causing ourselves problems and probably those around us problems, right? We're digging a hole for ourselves because we're reactive. We can't control our reactivity. So we already have a sense how useful it would be to have this exquisite, peaceful balance, to be unshakable in life, to be able to connect, to show up in every situation. Like, you might not this you know you might immediately think of difficult situations but how about all of the boring neutral times of our life but that we could be really intimate really connecting 
in those boring moments, not averse, not indifferent to the boring moments of our lives, not confused by the pleasant moments where things are really nice, but just relaxed, really letting it in, knowing that it won't last, but really being touched by the pleasantness when that's what's happening. And so we, the mind gets interested, well, what are the causes for equanimity? Well, the one I mentioned, you know, when the mind's withdrawn from what agitates it, then there's equanimity. But the other cause for equanimity, of course, is understanding the insubstantial, unsatisfactory, impersonal nature of experience. So it's not, it's not so much that I'm trying not to delight in experience or trying to not crave what I like and not be averse to what I don't like. Instead, it, the practice is more about seeing that it isn't any experience isn't worth grasping out of fear, out of hope, out of desire. And so this is a theme we can... Cultivate, I mean, it's basically the path of awakening. It involves this very profound dispassion for sense experience. I was using over, I think it was the day-long retreat on Saturday, this article by Andy Olensky where he's talking about this word nibida, which is a Pali word, usually gets, sometimes gets translated in a really provocative way as disgust or repulsion, revulsion, but uh, maybe better translated as disenchantment. Or seeing like the actual uh, root of the word is that there's nothing satisfying here. There's nothing satisfying here. And to have that as we move through life like There's no real ground here. So wherever it is, like you go home, as nice as your home might be, let's say, but like there's no real ground here in this home, in this relationship with my partner, in this relationship with my cat, in eating food. doesn't mean we don't eat the food. It just means that It's not providing lasting ground. It's not really satisfying the ego in a permanent way. When we cultivate, if you're willing to cultivate that perception or that way of relating to sense experiences, you might think you'll get really depressed. But you just might instead cultivate this exquisite equanimity. Because it's not about disgust or reject, rejecting sense experience because that's just another way of finding ground. Like if I, you know, now it's sort of hip to, there's several books out about people living with very little. I don't know why, but it always seems like they're New Yorkers. And there's like, and what I've been thinking of in particular because I read the book review and they have a little apartment in New York City and it was like, 
can I live with, and I forget how many items they had. I'll take a rough guess. I don't know if this is right, but it was like in the 20s or 30s, you know, just like a toothbrush, a pair of pants, three shirts, you know, something like that. And that can be a fetish, you know, just like to be simple, to be, can be just as much of an attachment, a trap. The mind can be just as tight about it. But it's more about just having a cool relationship. And, it, and I often talk about it in terms of what's our allegiance. Is our allegiance towards grasping? Is that what we think will lead to happiness? Or is our allegiance, our refuge, letting go of grasping? And if we think our refuge is in letting go of grasping, then we need to cultivate that understanding in our relationship with sense experience. We go down in the morning to put our clothes on. Well, I do because our closet is in the basement. So you go down (laughs) into the closet, you know, and it's like, uh, you know, in a subtle way, oh, this pair of pants or clothes, these clothes will delight me, you know. know. Or can we just have a cool relationship? doesn't mean we, we might choose the same clothes. We don't have to choose the boring clothes. It's really about, like, is our mind feeding on the delightful qualities? Like, Literally, when we're looking at the pants, the shirt, are we, is the attention focusing on the delightful aspects, kind of whipping that up? Or are we looking at it in a cool way? Just pants. You know, just breakfast. Just the car. Just this, just this, just this, just this. And it goes right to the essence of the Buddhist teachings about the mind's relationship with sense experience. Is sense experience here to make us happy? Nice pants, nice car, nice this, nice that. Or is sense experience here because it's nature? Right? It's completely impersonal, the dance of sens- sensuality, whether we're getting pleasant or unpleasant. It's not actually here as a cause for happiness. And the suffering we experience as human beings is precisely because we think sense experience is really here to provide happiness. We mistakenly think that, assume that, perceive that, and then we set off living our life as if that's true, trying to get what we want, get rid of what we don't want. So equanimity is cultivating a different view, Sense experience is just sense experience. Some people have a lot of the pleasant end of the spectrum. Some people have a lot of the unpleasant end of the spectrum. But everybody's relationship with sensuality is mixed to some degree, right? And it's just that. It's just a dance, a flow of pleasant and unpleasant sense experiences. And we can cultivate that there's no ground there and take refuge in the peace of not mistakenly think there's something to grasp. Any questions about that before we break into small groups?
We spent all fall in the Buddhist studies class talking about sense experiences and trying to be very attuned to our different senses. And so we get really attuned to this. And now we're trying to move from being, I suppose we're trying to stay attuned to them, but develop a different attitude toward them. Is that what you're... Right. Is that what we're putting together here? Right. We get a taste of equanimity when the mind is withdrawn. And remember, it isn't just in deep meditation that the mind is withdrawn. But whenever you're in an experience, experience that's mostly pleasant, you want to remember to notice that at tho- in those moments, the mind isn't neurotically seeking a pleasant experience, right? Because it, it has one. So it has some equanimity. And that gives you a sense of that, that mind that's not agitated by wanting. Because you want to appreciate it, you want to know it and appreciate it, and then you want to take it into more ordinary experience where it's a mix of pleasant and unpleasant, right? And you want to see what does the mind need to see, what does the mind need to understand to maintain this balance of equanimity, this impartiality, this being okay with however it is, this not being surprised by what shows up. How can I maintain it? And then, so, and the Buddha says, well, the more you look at what supports that understanding when you're not secluded, when the mind's not secluded, is understanding that sense experience isn't worthy of grasping. It doesn't help to grasp. It's just agitating to grasp. That there's a way of moving through life with a cool relationship to what comes and goes. And we're cultivating a taste for that, an appreciation for that, seeing it as the way, as a refuge. Not trying to be good. It's not about being a good Buddhist. It's really about, is this the way to happiness? This is the way to happiness, right? It's like being curious. Is this the way to happiness, real happiness, that can be trusted? Uh, time for one more comment before we break into small groups. Anything else before we end? So just some thoughts then for your small groups, besides you know anything that's come up from the talk tonight, but equanimity is a kind of happiness. But going back to the seven factors altogether, you know, just the balance between the energizing and the tranquilizing factors and how you, your mind, its personality tends to fall on that, along that spectrum and what you need to emphasize, develop more than the others. Um, this whole theme of feeding and weakening the factors, how, how can you feed any of these seven factors? How have you seen that happen? And then maybe the last thing that might be of interest for you in talking in your small groups is just the power of the seven factors. I mentioned this right after the set, just to appreciate the mind in balance. It just does a real thing of beauty. Like not to be, you know, shy, like, oh, I can't love my mind. I can't appreciate the beauty, the power of balance. But to really feel empowered like, yeah, 
in that moment, in those moments, it wasn't personal, but the mind came into a balance that I deeply appreciate. And I feel the reverberation of faith, confidence, that although I'm, the mind isn't in that balance now, the taste of it sort of is inspiring. And I aspire, I resolve to kind of find ways to support the arising of that balance again. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.